the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. Coming up this hour, Aubrey and I are going to dive into the controversy at the NCAA Swimming National Championships. And then five statistics reveal that Christianity is actually good for the world. You're listening to The Common Good. friends happy tuesday welcome to the common good here on am 1160 hope for your life alongside aubrey Sampson. my name is brian Fromm. so glad to have you with us today it was a beautiful spring day yesterday aubrey not so much today rainy and cold but that is so sad about march in chicago besides that making you sad how are you today doing great doing great glad to be here with you brian well, that's good. That's good. Uh, everyone, we got spring break coming, so we are looking forward to it. All right, Aubrey, uh, knew that we had to get into this story. It, it dominated the weekend on some level. Most people would never think twice about the NCAA uh, College Swimming National Championships. But for anybody who watched the news, you know that this, uh, the, the Women's National Championship uh, was uh, ripe with controversy this year as um, I think her name is Leah Thomas. Uh, yeah, Leah Thomas, a transgender woman, uh, used to swim for three years as a man. This year has been swimming as a woman at Penn uh, and is dominating and is dominating. And this year she won the national championship, defeating the other women swimmers by a healthy, you know, you're used to watching uh, swimming in the right. Olympics and stuff, and it's always like who touched the wall first. This is was first, like yes. a quarter of a pool, half a pool away, and uh, it kind of blew up. Obviously, the controversy of people saying yeah. this is completely fair, and other people saying this is completely not fair. As happens on Twitter, mm. uh, it became the controversy of the day, and it was punctuated by a group of parents whose daughters were swimming in the national championships, writing a scathing letter to the uh, NCAA saying this wasn't fair uh, at all. Like our daughters have been working their entire Mm -hmm. lives building up to this point. Uh, And to give you some perspective, last year, uh, Leah Thomas, when she swam as a man, was like the 377th ranked swimmer in her um, in her Whatever it was, the 100 meter, the 500 meter, okay. whatever it was. Okay, gotcha. Uh, this year, she's the national championship uh, woman. And so this has brought up okay. a ton of controversy. Mm. And Aubrey, I've been a little hesitant to jump in and deal with this because our culture lacks nuance, right? We lack right, the ability right, to go, right. how do we have this conversation and, and have it as mm. not as the church, but as what's right culturally as a whole, right? We're not talking right, about right. Uh, a, a church team here. We're talking about the NCAA. And so I'm yeah. grateful, and then I'll get your thoughts on it, but I'm grateful because uh, when looking for nuance, one of the places I tend to go 
is our friend David French. And I feel like yeah, he's, he's so a lawyer. Mm-hmm. He gets the law. He dealt with this yeah. from a constitutional uh, kind of what's right and what's wrong in this. And so let me just read quickly something that David French, our friend, wrote about this, Aubrey. And then I would just love to hear what you have to say. Uh, uh, David French wrote, Leah Thomas and other trans individuals are human beings created in the image of God. They are, quote, created equal, but they are not created the same in all meaningful respects as the women they compete against or share locker rooms with. Our nation Mm. and culture can respect their dignity and protect their rights without Mm. denying the distinctions that really do make a difference. So David French takes Mm. this. He says... As a country, constitutionally, we must do all we can to protect dignity and rights and equality as stated in the Constitution and the Declaration of Independence. But he said this just David French lands on. But what happened this weekend isn't fair. Uh, Mm. We're denying the differences when it comes Mm. to bone structure and testosterone and other things that category, let alone sharing a locker room and what that means for the women on the team. Some stories have come out. uh, And Mm. he says, we can have a nuanced uh, discussion about equality versus fairness and what's right in specific situations. I appreciate where Mm. David landed on that. So Aubrey, I've got thoughts on this, but just as you were watching this, reading this, seeing the news, just wondering how do we process this? Yeah, you know, what's so interesting to me is I I feel like growing up, this is going to sound very old school. So hear me out Mm -hmm. before I make my final thought. But growing up, like in the old school South, uh, I've got a, you know, I've got like a Southern conservative old school dad, you know, and he Mm -hmm. would always he would always say a woman should never be on the football field. Like that was Mm -hmm. his, you know, right or wrong. That was his stance because he felt like unless you played football, uh, you didn't understand the game of football. Now, I had issues with that as a daughter growing up. That's a whole other conversation. You wanted to but play offensive I, line. I think, you were ready to roll. <laughs> yeah, and he wouldn't let me. No, <laughs> But I, I do think uh, almost in reverse now to have um, a transgender woman compete at the same level of mm-hmm, uh, mm-hmm. cisgender women is it, it does strike me as unfair. Because, again, there are some things that are just real about the differences between men and women, body structure, testosterone, muscle, strength. And, of course, there are outliers, right? There are certain women that are stronger than certain men. And I'm pro-women, okay, being strong. At the same time, I do think David French has hit the nail on the head here. Somehow, we have to be able to honor, dignify find equality for all people, period, as created in the image of God, period. And yet this doesn't feel like true equality. This feels like taking Mm -hmm. two unequally like matched competitors and assuming they can compete at the same level. And that is not, I, you know, I know that the critics might say, oh, you don't think women are strong athletes. Like, I'm not saying that at all. I'm just saying it doesn't it feels like maybe there needs to be at some point and i know we're not there yet but like a transgender uh category for swimmers so that that playing field can be a little more equal at the start yeah i i think it's a good point i do think uh that if um th- th- we've got cultural wins going here right this is an ivy league school this is we have yeah. cultural wins that want to call hey if 
uh, if Leah Thomas says she's a girl, then she's a girl and can compete with all girls. But what yeah. you've done is you've put all the other women who have been competing here and practicing and doing this at an unfair adv- uh, disadvantage. Yeah. And, disadvantage. And now there's some stories coming out where they were like, you're going to lose your scholarship if you speak out against this. You can't speak out against this. You must be oh. supportive of that. And now mm. you're going, well, here's the deal. And quite frankly, if I put myself, I've got two daughters. I put myself, if this was one of my daughters having to do this, yeah. I would be livid. You'd be angry. I would yeah. be yeah. livid. Absolutely. Yeah. David agree. French goes on to say, uh, here's where I am on the dispute. In the vast majority of like, life circumstances, he writes, I do not believe that a trans person should face discrimination simply because mm. they are trans. But there are limited circumstances where biological realities mean that some distinctions are not only wise, they protect other classes of Americans from both unfairness and intrusion uh, on their rights. And so I think he nails it right there. Like, I think we have to be able to have nuanced discussions that say, okay, we want to be supportive. Whether you agree with – like, this is not even a conversation about whether you agree with transgenderism. This is just people having uh, the right not to be discriminated against or whatever. But then you've got to be able to say – we've got to be able to have this conversation across the board instead of saying this is the topic of the day and therefore we have to push forward. We can't have any – can I uh, can I just say one more thing before you close, Brian? Yeah, I, this absolutely. is from David French himself, and I, I think this is like David French's one of his like money quotes. He says, "Pretending there are no distinctions." Like again, he's talking about what you're saying, like equality, yes, dignity, yes. Yet pretending that there are no distinctions between trans women and biological women isn't always a kindness. It can be a cruelty, especially in athletics and certain kinds of intimate spaces. Trans women and women are not similarly situated in all respects. I think that's all he's trying to say ultimately. And somehow, like you're saying, we have to be able to have enough nuance where we can we can talk about that. That's right. That's right. In this situation, like, again, this isn't about. You know, what should the church believe or this or that? This is just about what's fair. And I think as a as a as a culture, we need to be able to have nuanced conversations in a much more complicated society. Yeah. Uh, And I think the NCAA failed at that this weekend. Yeah. All right. Aubrey, I was really grateful for Josh Howerton. Uh, He wrote he's a pastor. He wrote an article over at the Gospel Coalition that says, no, Christianity is not as bad as you think. Five statistics that reveal Mm. it's good for the world. Before getting into his five statistics Mm. and his argument that it's good for the world, let me first ask this. Why do you think there's a lot of people out there? What's he trying to answer here? Do you think that culturally speaking, there's a thought that Christianity Mm. is bad for the world, and so therefore he had to write to try to refute that? Yeah, I mean, I think there's there's a lot of a lot of thinkers and thought leaders and even just culture itself that says Christianity is um, like several things, uh, hypocritical, sexually Mm -hmm. repressive, actually um, the producers of a lot of violence and hate in the world when, you know, Christians say they're supposed to love. And then that Christianity, you know, brings on like um, uh, uh how do I put this? There's a connection between Christianity and like Trumpism. 
And mm. for a lot of people, that it, that feels wrong. And uh, that Christian nationalism feels wrong. And then, of course, the way Christians have treated women, patriarchy. I mean, there's a lot of categories, I would say, where people go, is this really good? But I actually think perhaps those critics are responding to a version of Christianity that I don't think is actually orthodox doctrine or historically accurate. Yeah, that's, that's well put. I think the the problem here is that people, culturally speaking, culturally around, have brought in, bought into, like you said, a lot of stereotypes of what the church is and what Christianity is. Oh, yeah. they all vote this way. They all yeah. believe this. When in reality, and what Josh Howerton's going to try to get at here is, no, it's still the church— that is doing unbelievable work the way it always has through the centuries to bless the co- the, the the country to bless the world mm-hmm. and he wants to highlight that he he does begin he says let me begin with a caveat nothing in the following paragraphs indicates that every church is healthy or that there aren't issues for self-reflection and repentance. Yeah. He says far from it. So this is not an all-or-nothing deal for him. He's not saying all churches are great, everybody's getting it right. He, in fact, says Christians and therefore churches are imperfect, sometimes grievously so. Uh, but he says, he says a wide and growing gap between cultural narratives about Christianity— and the reality of Christianity, and he gives five examples. And I think this is really helpful. He says, this is what you're reading, this is what you're hearing about, but let me tell you what's really going on. So, Aubrey, I want to just walk through these three, and A, ask you, do you think they're, this one's true, each one's true, uh, okay. and then B, why does it make a difference? If, if, our, if our culture understood okay. this, what difference does it make? So let's start with this. Number one, okay. cultural narrative. He says... Christians aren't really pro-life, they're just pro-birth. He says Christians are sometimes accused of this. They pretend to be passionate about the lives of the unborn as a political weapon, the argument goes, goes, but they don't really care about children once they're born. But the, the data tells a different story. He says he gives a chart here that says rates of adopting children. It's 2% of all U.S. households, 5% of practicing Christians. He says uh, almost every pregnancy resource center you've ever seen to care for vulnerable women, as well as countless child sponsorship programs, the adoption rate and everything have been started by Christian groups. So the idea that we're mm, uh, culture wow. says we're just pro, uh, pro-life for a political reason not after they're born. Mm. You hear this often. And Josh Howerton wants to say, no, that's not true. The church, in fact, is the most pro-child, pro-women, and as it goes pro-birth, post-birth, that's going on out there. I find this one really compelling, Aubrey. Yeah, this is interesting. I don't know if you remember, Brian. Gosh, it might have even been a year ago. There was somebody who was trying to like put Christians in their place about this and said something like, okay, Christians, yes. if you're so pro-life, tell me the last time you've helped a woman, a woman, uh, something like that, an abortion-minded woman. Like it was something like that. I'm sure That's I'm not exactly saying it right. That's exactly what it was. But like yes. this person got, okay, this person got I mean, hundreds, if not thousands of responses of Christians saying, oh, yeah, I had this single mom move into my house. I helped with this adoption process. Mm -hmm. Our church held a baby shower for we marched in a protest like and it almost like I think the woman was deeply surprised because she expected not to have the response that she got. And so Mm -hmm. I do think that this is really 
accurate. And I mean, there's data here from Barna Research that shows practicing Christians actually do like put their money where their mouth is when it comes to this and actually not just like talk about this, but actually practice what they're mm-hmm. preaching in this area. That's awesome. That That is what Josh is getting at. He's saying, no, they're all around us. We're seeing the church come up and rise up to help women who choose to give birth. Well, number two, uh, Christians, he says, the, the, na- the narrative goes, are sexually repressive and anti-sex, creating a toxic purity culture. And he's going to go on to say, though, statistics say that church-going conservative Christians are in the category of most fulfilling sex lives in America. And he says, therefore, putting a premium on covenant marriage, it turns out, creates a relational mm. dynamic filled with the kind of passion the world wants us to think is produced only by liberation mm. From scriptures, outdated sexual mores. So he's saying our focus on marriage is actually making for healthier people. What, what do you think about that one? Yeah, I mean, I, I. So here's what's interesting about this one. I feel like I'm going to talk out of both sides of my mouth here. I think this is probably very true within marriages. I don't think Josh Howerton is actually addressing the real issue because when people are talking about people, Christians being sexually repressive, they're not talking about that inside of a marriage. They're talking about like sexual expression across like LGBTQ lines, right? They're talking about sexual identity. And so I think, though I love this and I think he's right and I'm grateful to hear this. And I, of course, believe like covenantal sex is the best sex there is because that's blessed by God. You don't feel guilty and there's no shame and there's intimacy and safety and those types of things. I don't, if we're just taking Josh Howerton's article at face value, I don't think he's answering the right question here. Interesting. I I think he's trying to get at, and then I'll run through the other three. I think he's, I get what you're saying. I think he's trying to get at this idea uh, that we as Christians are just sexually repressive. And if we just let people, you know, hookup culture, if we just let people do what they wanted to do, people would be much more free and they wouldn't have all of this sexual baggage. And he's saying, no, actually, that's what creates the sexual baggage. Um, Mm. so I I think that's where he's going. Let me read quickly the other three and you can pick one. He says, I go read this at the gospel coalition people. This is really good. Cultural narrative. Number three, he says, Christianity is emotionally repressive and therefore bad for your mental health. He says, actually data shows church attendance correlates with things like less depression, uh, less, um, meaning in life or greater meaning in life and others. Number four, Cultural narrative, Christians don't care about the poor, only political power. Uh, He says Christians are cast as anti-poor. And he says, number five, Christianity is gender oppressive, a tool of the abusive patriarchy and creates toxic relationships for women. They're all, those could be segments on their own there, Aubrey. But why don't you grab one of those uh, that you'd love to touch on? I mean... Ah, Christianity is gender oppressive. I guess here's where he's getting to what we talked about before, a tool of the abusive patriarchy and creates toxic relationships for women. I don't think that's Christianity, but I'm not going to lie. A lot of my brothers and sisters in the church do sometimes create abusive patriarchal situations towards women. And so I... uh, I'm I'm not sure that I totally agree with Josh Howerton here. This is where I think we need to parse out, like... What is true Christianity? Because Jesus doesn't do that. Mm-hmm. The the um, 
the heart of God never does that. But our brothers and sisters in church, and as we're seeing some of these terrible stories come out related to hashtag church too, I do think this is a reality we have to really, really lament and own before we just brush it aside and say, no, actually, women are really happy in churches. These are the least abusive in the country. I I hope he's right, Brian, but I, I'm reading mm. this and I I still don't think Josh Howerton is hitting the nail on the head. So I, I'm actually surprised at my own reaction to this article, but I think he's missing he's missing some of what's happening in the world right now with women in the church. Okay. I think that's fair. I would I would guess that this is coming from a feeling of if we just removed he, you know, patriarchy, if we just removed what you hear in church's complementarianism, all church abuse would go away when he's saying that that's not the case. But that is a topic that I'm so I'm guessing we need to dive into uh, for another day because that is we'll have to uh, do a whole show on that sometime. But for re- but what you are saying is there is a lot of abuse in the church and he would agree with that. We don't want to brush that under the rug. Right. We don't want to say, yeah, yeah, this isn't going on. Well, uh, is Christianity good for the world? Go check out this article at the gospel coalition dot org. Lots of uh uh, stuff to get you thinking. Lots of good stuff there from Josh Howard to, to at least get you thinking. Oh, Aubrey, I love that music. That music, it just gets me fired up because that means it's a little... Thing. We do this thing called Grinds My Gears. And here, let me... We always give the caveat for Grinds My Gears. I understand there's a war going on in the Ukraine and great travesty. Great atrocities. Right. I understand right. that there's still COVID uh, going on. I understand uh, there's poverty around the world, whatever else. Those are so much more important than the things we talk about in Grinds My Gears, and we understand that. But, Aubrey, every now and then we just need to get stuff off of our chest. There's things that bother us. There's things that annoy us. And we like to use our show as a little opportunity to mm-hmm. say, you know what? I'm going to just vent about these. I need yeah. to be heard, and then I can move on with my day. So yes. grinds my gears. Yes. Are those little things in your day that just annoy you, that bother you? Again, they pale in comparison to the war in the Ukraine. We understand right. that. That's but terrible. We still, yeah. We, we still have other still. things to vent about. Yeah. Yes, we do. I'm going to go first, Aubrey. Okay, let's hear it. Beautiful day yesterday, 70 degrees, sunny outside. And so lots of people out, including myself, taking their dogs for a walk. I took both of my dogs on a nice long walk around the neighborhood. We have kind of this route that we take. My one dog, Pippa, she'll stay right by you. Jersey, she's like, uh, she's just crazy, like a chicken with his head cut off, just running around. You know, it's just crazy. So. Lots of people out taking walks. Aubrey, let me tell you what grinds my gears in this scenario. I'm ready. I'm ready. Let's hear it. If you're a dog owner who does not pick up your dog's poop, <gasps> I really think you should not just be ticketed. You should be arrested. I'm overstating Is that a thing? Here. People don't pick up their dog's poop? Clearly. Aubrey, I walked by more than one. No. Uh, How can we say this gently? Deposit by a dog, not even in a grass, (laughs) but Aubrey on the sidewalk where it is clearly sitting there. It's not like 
oh, it's in the grass. Maybe their dog lives at this place, so maybe there's an explanation. No, this is on the sidewalk. We live near a school. Kids are walking home on this sidewalk all day long. That is nasty. So if you are that person, uh, I want to tell you in in just really clear terms, (laughs) you're a terrible person. And you should walk your dog in your own backyard. Yes, that's and it. And let your dog do its business in your own backyard. And then if you choose yes. to not pick it up, that's fine. Yes. Because here's the second part of Grinds My Gears, Aubrey. I'm a dog owner. I despise picking up after my dog on a walk. But I still do it. I'd because still... that's like your, you understand as a human, that's like your obligation to do that. As a good neighbor, as a human being. Like, I get it can be a little degrading. Jerry Seinfeld, he's got a really uh, well-known skit, Aubrey. I don't know if you're you're a Seinfeld fan. Seinfeld said that if Martians were to, if aliens come to Earth one day and just watched us walk our dogs, they would assume that the dogs are the people running the world. (laughs) As he says, as you see humans with bags on their hands behind them just waiting to pick up after them. That's so that's funny. a Seinfeld that's funny. But again, and I'll leave it at this. If you okay. are a person who enjoys a beautiful day outside, takes your dog on a walk, lets your dog do its business on a sidewalk nonetheless, yeah. but even yeah. in your neighbor's yard and you don't pick up after them, you are a terrible person. You're a bad person. Who deserves yeah. everything they're going to get. Uh, I think you are, (laughs) even if you don't have a bag with you, why would you go walk your dog without a bag? Even if you don't have a bag with you, go home, get Get a bag, bag. come back and pick it up. I've watched people Ah, where you're watching their dog ah, go to the bathroom and then just keep walking. None of us as dog owners like to do it, but it is like base level common decency Uh, to do that and aubrey now that it's warm out i just want to implore our people bring a bag be a a good neighbor bring a bag that's it i feel like that's really good can i tell you something related to that brian i don't know if you know one of my one of my gross stories about this but i was here for uh, i spent a summer in scotland when i was in college and i went uh, i was out for a walk somebody was walking their dog dog jumped on my lap not my lap but like up on my legs and i started petting the dog really really cute dog and in a scottish accent i'm not gonna say the word she said because it was a bad word but you use deposit so i'll use that (laughs) she said don't pet him he's got deposits all over his face (laughs) all over and it's literally After I'm petting him, I'm petting him. And then she says it to me. And I'm like, (laughs) you, you could have said it before I started petting your dog or don't let your dog jump on me. So I went, I went and found the nearest bathroom and washed my hands. But that is, (laughs) that's weird. That must be a Scottish thing. I guess so. Just why, 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 why? Okay. So I've got a good one, Brian. And, and I'm going to say. I am so guilty of this. So this is pot calling kettle black. Okay. But it's on my mind because of something we've been talking about. That is, I've been reading this book, Restless Devices, about how our phones are controlling us. And so now I'm more sensitive to it. So I'm trying to get better, but I am guilty of it. But um, I am tired of being places with people who, in the middle of a conversation, they pick up their phone 
and they're texting or they're looking at whatever they're doing, and you're telling a story, and they're just going, uh-huh, 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 and you know they're not listening, and so you could say something like, and then an alien impregnated my mother, <laughs> and they're like, uh-huh, 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 this has happened to me recently where I, someone was, I was at a, I was I was getting my nails done and someone the whole time was supposed to be painting my nails, but instead kept checking her phone. It was like, I was like waiting and I kept like looking like, are you, are you going to get back to it? So again, <laughs> so I am, I'm guilty. I'm guilty of it. So I, I'm saying I am a hypocrite of hypocrites. I'm the worst, except this has to change. Like, just don't be rude. Put your phone away until you're done. Finish your job. Then pick up your phone. Or if you're in the middle of a conversation with someone, wait till they're done, then pick up their phone. I, again, I'm guilty. I'm working on it. But it's it's a whole thing in our society right now. You are 100% correct about that. And I am so guilty of that. Like, I'm. this is a... This is a uh, a character flaw of mine to the point that I was once out with somebody <laughs> from our church at lunch, and they asked me yeah. to put my phone away. And <gasps> I felt oh, so no, guilty. Seriously? They were 100% right. They were yeah. 100% right. But they said, uh, uh, can you? And I was like, I'm so I apologized. I'm like, I'm so sorry. There is something yeah. about the phone let alone when I'm I hear a text, you. it's like, what's it? You know, like you can't wait for five yeah. minutes. But even like, oh, there's a lull in the, not really in the conversation, but like, oh, they just got up to go get a drink. Let me quickly check Twitter. I'll quickly like, check. What? Totally. Totally. Or checking email during the day because you're like, yes. what could be going on? What am I yes. missing right now? When you're like, what did I really miss in the last 30 minutes? Oh, you Nothing. spoke to my heart right there, so I've probably done it to you. <laughs> so. this, this actually was my intervention, Brian. <laughs> no, once you said it happened when you went to get your nails done, I'm like, okay, good, I'm off the hook. No, yeah, it wasn't so, you. It yeah. actually wasn't you, but I'm guilty of it too. And it's got we have got to start making people more important than our phones. But it, it's a whole. It's not just you. That's the thing. I think it's our yes. our total culture right now, and I, we it's got to change. Okay, the two takeaways from Grinds My Gears today, they okay. are good ones. If people yes. hear anything from our show today, this <laughs> Just is it. One, hear this. one, put your phone away when talking to other people, your wife, <laughs> your husband, your kids, your coworkers, yes. someone you're meeting with, whatever else. Be a decent human being, which I already admitted I'm often not in this scenario. Same, but same. Be a decent, put away your phone. And mm-hmm. two, pick up your dog's poop, especially <laughs> if it's on a sidewalk. Don't be that person. Spring is here. We all walk our dogs now. Yes. Do not be that person. Okay. I feel like that's helpful. We we helped move society. We've solved a lot of world problems today. Yes. We've both talked about this, that we don't love evening meetings, right? Mm-hmm. Is that because we're lazy or it's just you want to be at home with your family? Because I feel the same way as you do, but how come you don't like late Tuesday night meetings? It's it's I, I enjoy very much being home with the family. Like I enjoy yeah. family nights where we're all home. We don't have a lot of those nights these days because my kids are so are busy. Like you know, junior hires and high schoolers tend to be. Um, and it's not a laziness thing, right? Like I, it would be lazy if I was like, I don't like morning meetings. I don't like afternoon meetings. I don't like night meetings. Like I'm willing to do meetings. I just enjoy them being during the day or in the morning. But I'll do them yeah. when they need to be done. Yeah. To answer your question is I like my family and I like to be home and I like to eat dinner and then unwind. And so that's always my preference. Yes, I think that's true for me, too. Okay, in any of your unwinding time or your non-meeting time, Brian, have you been paying attention the last couple days to the Katanji Brown Jackson confirmation hearings uh, for the Supreme Court? 
I would say a little bit. Uh, not a ton yeah. because uh, for many reasons. One, I don't pay attention to those things generally. So it's not like I was sitting riveted when Brett Kavanaugh or Amy Coney Bryant, uh, Barrett were, right, was on. Right, right. Uh, so it's, it's, this isn't a partisan thing for me. This is, I don't really like to spend my time watching Senate confirmation yeah. hearings, yeah. but I do want to be informed. And there was that right. touching moment yesterday where she talked about her husband and her husband was crying behind her. Like all of us who are married feel that, like we could feel that, but, um, you know, they are very, uh, they're very, they're going to be very partisan, right? From right. Right. Um, Absolutely. The, the Republicans are going to drill her. And mm-hmm. uh, the Democrats, Cory Booker, last yesterday basically described her nomination as a spiritual experience, as like a gift from God. Like wow, you're, wow. We, we can cut a little more down the middle here. And so I do have thoughts on the whole process. But as yeah. for watching it, you know, whatever they showed me on the Today Show is basically what I saw today. Yeah, I, I thought something that was interesting that happened, I believe this was yesterday, Lindsey Graham started off uh, by pressing Jackson about her faith. She mm-hmm. describes herself as a non-denomina- non-denominational Protestant. And he said, on a scale of one to 10, how faithful would you say you are in terms of religion? She's, she said she wasn't comfortable answering questions about how often she attends church. But she said, personally, my faith is very important. But mm-hmm. as you know, there's no religious test in the Constitution. Mm-hmm. And I thought that was really, really interesting that he asked about her faith. But I do know that Amy Coney uh, Barrett, Barrett was also asked a lot of questions For about sure. her faith as well. So perhaps he was just trying to bring that to the table because it happened before. I'm not sure. But it's been interesting to to watch um, questions about interpretation of the law and her record and decisions that she's made. And I tend to maybe be a little Pollyanna here, Brian, and think that at this point in someone's career, if you're being nominated for the Supreme Court, you have a pretty good handhold on how to interpret the law. I tend to be like, okay, I I trust that you know how to read and interpret the Constitution, the law in a way that is uh, ethical and judicial. But I recognize like maybe I'm being a little, I don't know, naive there or like I said, a little Pollyannish there. What do you think about that? So I, it's a it's a good hope to have. I, I yeah. would suggest that 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 especially recent history tells us otherwise, because everybody has a you still have a bent. So, yes, I would like to think that all Supreme and I would I would say all Supreme Court justices are at the point where they can um, make legal arguments, decide cases. They know case law. But I guess what I would point to, Aubrey, is. We do have a Supreme Court that on most cases, including the most contentious ones, you can guess how they're going to vote by who, no- who nominated them in the point. first place. Yeah. So it That's a good feels point. like less like they're starting from zero, like a blank slate, and yeah. more from yeah. everybody's got their biases, everybody has their leanings, and yes, make sure you're doing the law correctly. Um, right. But that is it. You know, for me, when it comes to Supreme Court, I... I, I uh, uh, there's going to be people who are going to hear this who are going to disagree with. I think elections have consequences. I think elections matter. Mm. And therefore, I think barring huge ethical issues, barring huge issues, I think the people who were voted in when there's an open Supreme Court nominee should be able to put forth the person they think is best qualified, whether yeah. I agree with them or not. Yeah. It doesn't mean that I have to support them. I can Facebook. I can do everything. I don't want this person on the Supreme Court. 
in the end, I don't think it works well for our system for every time a Democrat puts somebody up, the Republicans say we will not vote and vice versa. Right, right, I think right. I think elections have consequences. And if you're that concerned, which we should be, if you're that concerned about the Supreme Court, then make sure your people get elected. Mm. Uh, and that's the way to do it instead of stonewalling at every point. Because if mm. we just get into a spot where we stonewall on both sides at all point. We're going to cease to have a Supreme Court as it goes. So my point here would be elections have consequences. Yeah. yeah. And uh, that's how this tends to play out. So in the end, I think she should be confirmed whether I agree with her policies or not. Yeah. So let's actually talk about that, too, Brian, because you and I were kind of talking off air earlier uh, today mm-hmm. about um, the reality of. So I'm really excited to see, you know, the first black woman ever be confirmed, maybe mm-hmm. into mm-hmm. a Supreme Court position. And you're also celebrating that like you're not not sure. celebrating that. But what you were kind of you were kind of asking what if this was a woman who you totally disagreed with? Like, would yeah. you would you still want to see her in a Supreme Court role as a Supreme Court nominee? And um, I think that's a really interesting question. So do you can you kind of tell the people what you were saying earlier? Yeah, I uh, I would. So let's take an election for one, because there I actually have a voice. Supreme Court, I don't have a voice. Right. So let's pretend. So both of these work. But let's pretend we thought uh, a, a woman really needed to be president. Okay, let's take that for whatever. Uh, I would not vote for that person because she's a woman if she stood for things that I categorically was against. I would vote for— Yeah, because for you, that feels like tokenism. So, and because policies matter. So if the woman is Mm -hmm. very pro-choice, if the woman is very pro—things that I'm categorically against, uh, Mm -hmm. if she is hostile towards the—whatever else it might be. Right, right. I think the better solution is to say, how do we raise up? And this might take more election cycles. This might take yeah. more years. Yeah. But how do we raise up uh, from a grassroots level a woman or an African-American woman or an African-American mm-hmm. man, whatever you think, mm-hmm. an Asian-American, uh, who I also in good conscience could vote for because of what they believe and, and that? Because to mm-hmm. me, the policies matter more than the person. Yeah. Okay. And not everybody agrees with that. Yeah. uh, yeah. But I'm going to vote, especially about policies that matter a lot for me. Yeah. um, Abortion and other things. I'm Mm -hmm. going to, quite frankly, I'll just be blunt. I'm going to vote for the old white guy versus uh, the African-American woman, even though I might be more excited to see us as a a nation have an African-American woman. The policies matter more for me. That's more at stake. Yeah. So I want to say, how do we raise up a African-American woman or an Asian-American man who believes these same things? That's kind of my take on it. Gotcha. Gotcha. You just want to feel like you're voting in someone who stands for your beliefs. I think that matters more. Yeah, yeah, I, yeah. I, I do. And, and, I do. And we obviously don't have enough time to have this whole conversation. I, I think for me, I because I do long to see that needle move. I long to see black representation. I long to see female representation in some of these higher offices. That I, that for me, I I almost have to step back and go, okay. Do I mean I have to ask myself if I agree with you or not, Brian? Because I long to see that needle move so desperately to see a new day. And I almost feel yeah. like, okay, if this is what it takes to see a new day in the future, to see that person that I wholeheartedly can get behind, then am I willing to vote for somebody I'm not totally behind just to see the needle move forward? Maybe. And so it's a question I'm asking myself. I haven't totally yeah. answered it, but I think yeah. you bring up me, some really good points for us to wrestle with. 
Yeah, for me, I would say no to that. I would say if if we yeah. are at if it is if they are two equal candidates that I can get behind, then I would I would begin having. Well, man, it would be awesome uh, to see an African American man or whatever else it might be. But but for me, if the policies yeah. are really uh, antithetical to what I believe and I think are going to hurt. To the gospel, yeah. The yeah. gospel or is going to hurt babies or is going to move our nation backwards, I don't mm-hmm. think that, 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 that's going to outweigh the yeah. other for me every time. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I, that makes a lot of sense, Brian. That makes a lot of sense. That's a good word for all of us. Brian, after the past couple of years, the whole world has learned to work remotely. I would say that's been Seriously. one of the massive culture changes when it comes to the reality of our post-COVID world. That uh, a lot of people, I mean, I have lots of friends who have moved because their job went fully remote. So they didn't have to live in this area anymore. Mm -hmm. Or friends who just, they had a choice and decided they prefer to work remotely. Other friends who decided, no, I need to be in an office again. I got to get out. I have other friends who, you know, uh, rented some space in like a co-working space because they are working remotely, but they couldn't handle being alone anymore. So it's, I mean, it's changed the whole landscape of the way we work, wouldn't you say? Oh, absolutely. It is uh, I think one of the most enduring parts of what we've gone through the last two years, right, is mm-hmm. this idea that, oh, maybe I don't need to be in an office. Maybe I can be pretty flexible. The ironic thing is, as pastors, I think, <clears throat> at least for me, I should say, this is something I was doing pre-COVID. I was going to coffee shops. I was doing this because you know, you're writing a sermon or whatever. It's a more of a solitary deal. But I think people who were who were in offices all the time, I think this is one of the really big changes that I'm not sure everybody knows uh, I think what we're wrestling with now, Aubrey, is what are the benefits, but also what are the pitfalls? Like, what are the yeah. dangers that maybe we've swung the pendulum too far? I don't know. We're going to figure that out, I guess, in the years to come. Uh, yeah, absolutely. I, I think there it will be interesting to see, yes, 10 years from now, are we still working remotely? Has everyone shifted back because they miss each other? Or they're realizing that, like, being online is not the same as being in person. It doesn't lend itself to enough camaraderie or creative i don't know i think it'll be really interesting but then of course some of the beautiful part is like it's pretty freeing to be able to roll out of bed in your pajamas and work from home i think especially like i mean let's just add gas prices into this whole conversation to save money that way you know there's some interesting things about it so i bring this up because uh gravity which is an organization that's known for being run on principles of emotional intelligence their ceo who's a guy named dan price they're out of seattle they ask their employees, where do they want to work? Do you want to work remotely? Do you want to work at home? Do you want to work some type of hybrid situation? And here's the hmm. response they got. 7% want to go to the office full time. So it's a really small amount. 31% want an office remote hybrid situation. And 62% want to work only from home. So the, the hmm. vast majority want to work primarily from home. And here's what he said. So I told them, sounds great. Do whatever you want. As a CEO, what do I care? If you get your work done, that's all that matters. Hmm. And um, basically, he's being touted as like this being really brilliant, really simple, and some ways that uh, like a, a policy that other companies should steal. Okay, so let's pause there for just a second. Brian, you run an organization. It's a church, so really, really different than you know something like Gravity. But you run an organization. How do you feel about this? Like, put your boss hat on. How would you feel about this? Would you just be like, sure, do whatever you want as long as your work's getting done? 
I would not because I believe that part <laughs> of a healthy work culture, I think culture is important here. And now he would answer, Dan Price, I mean, he's brilliant. He's the guy also people might remember yes. a couple of years ago said, everyone in my business is going to make the same amount of money, including me, including the CEO. They all made like 70 grand or something. Uh, but I would say, um, Aubrey, there's something, at least in, in our church, there's something about team. There's something about uh, culture. So that for me is one. How are you? And I'm sure he's thought about this, but how if everybody in your office or 70 percent of your office is working remotely from home, uh, Mm -hmm. how do you then move the ball forward in terms of culture? Right. Like getting to know. You don't want people coming to the Christmas party after nine months of working, introducing themselves to each other. So how do you do that? Yeah. And then two. Yep. I'm just going to speak very personally. I don't work well at home. Like I don't, mm. I am not effective. I, I, I tend to, when I'm at home, I get my mind on home things like, oh man, I, in the summertime, I'm going to take a break and go mow the lawn or I'm going to, and then you end up working a half day. You end up doing this or that. And so I, you've got to have some mechanism. And his point would be, I told them as long as you get your work done and they're going to be evaluated, yeah. I feel like you've got to figure out, I don't feel like I could figure that out well. So I don't make our people come in and be like, you must be here because I'm not here all the time. But with that said, uh, I do think um, there is something to -to face-to-face interaction. Let's just – Aubrey, let's take our radio job right now, right? Like Mm -hmm. through these Mm -hmm. two years, I think people know this, we've done more than our fair share of of shows because of COVID remotely from I'm at my church, you're at your house or remote, and we could see each other on the screen or whatever. Uh, Mm -hmm. it's been really convenient and it's been really good that we can do that. Uh, It's helped with family and other things at the same time. I think you and I would both agree it's easier and it is, there's something special about doing a show when we're in the studio together. Like it's different. It doesn't mean one's right. Different energy. Totally. Mm -hmm. Right. And so I just think in your organization, you'd have to say, what do we value? How are we going to keep people accountable? And people are going to need to be honest. Like if they told me you could work from home, I'd be like, great. But it, sometimes when I work from home only, it feels like when we were kids and we had a snow day. You're like, cool. Right, I get to be right. At home. You're like watching and, TV and having snacks. So, and yeah. Well, that's it. Exactly. Well, you know what? I'm, I'm doing my work on my laptop, but I'm going to do my work on my laptop while sitting in my lazy boy with something on in the background. Mm. It's not effective. So maybe yeah. the 70% yeah. of the people are really good at it. Maybe they're really yeah. good at it. And maybe they have the types yeah. of jobs that are lend towards this. I don't think I could do it exclusively. Yeah. I mean, I think it's – it. I I do think you're on to something about the culture of an organization. And it does seem to me that if you're going to let, you know, 70% of your organization work remotely and assume and hope and trust that they're doing their job, fine. We're adults. Like, I understand that. But you all you are going to have to counteract that somehow mm-hmm. with building culture in a new way. And I don't know how to do that when people are disembodied. I haven't had enough experience. I mean, I think time will tell. Can we do that or not do that? Because I do think you're right. There's something about working together, building team culture, casting vision, having conversations, even just interacting that brings morale. It brings a new energy. It gives brainstorm. It brings creativity. And I'm saying that as an introvert. So I actually work very well at home. And I actually am very disciplined to work at home. Like I'm not going to be watching TV. I manage my time at home very well. Mm. I still think there's value in 
like rubbing shoulders with being together, understanding like team dynamics that you can't do over a screen. And again, maybe it's because we haven't had to. And so time might change that. But anyway, I think this is going to be interesting. It's not going away. Goes on to see how the landscape. Yeah, it's definitely not going away. So how will the landscape of the work environment with remote work continue to change we'll have to see as time goes on we're so glad that you're with us today it's the end of today's show and at the end of every show we love to bring you something to put a smile on your face or challenge you or inspire you brian we've been talking a lot about work and work-life balance so we thought we'd have a conversation about sleeping and rest but particularly dreaming while sleeping sleep perchance to dream um brian are you a big dreamer like do you have vivid dreams no, I was I was just thinking when you were talking about this, Aubrey, I don't ever remember my dreams when I wake up. Like <gasps> it is this once is so sad, in a, really? it is it is once in a blue moon where I feel like I wake up and I'm like, Oh yeah, that was a dream. That was it. I feel like I don't I don't know if that says like I'm I'm a non creative person or I'm not sleeping well or You're not I, sleeping I know, maybe, well is what I'm thinking that means. Or maybe it means I'm brilliant and have a high IQ. I and I'm using all my brain power when I'm awake. It's it means something. Maybe I don't know it. what it maybe means. Maybe that's it. But no, I never wow. remember my dreams. Wow. Okay. I'm a very vivid dreamer, but you want to know something? My youngest son, Nolan, he has the wildest dreams and no one really likes to hear about other people's dreams, but this one was funny, so very quickly. He dreamt that he appeared to himself, but he was wearing golden overalls. And he was like, I talked to myself in golden overalls for a while while people watched. Like, that was a whole dream. It's a great dream. Like, that is a fantastic dream. You are so wild. Okay, so then, Brian, do you, you probably don't have any reoccurring dreams, do you? I don't. And I can't. This sounds really weird. I can't think of any recurring dreams that I had at any point in my life. Is this weird? Am I, am no. I doing counseling what? here right now? <gasps> I you, can't yeah, think of we, like, this is therapy. You need to go to therapy. Are you serious? I, if you asked me what is one recurring dream you had in your life, I honestly, and I'm not being, I'm not like yeah. being difficult. I don't have any. This is weird. I need, I need to do some wow. a deep dive research here. I'm sure there's a podcast I need to listen to somewhere. Wow. Oh yeah, we need to, we need to circle back to this, Brian, and make sure. What about you're you? Okay. All right. Well, well, I have, I have three reoccurring dreams, but the Whoa. the most reoccurring dream is that my teeth fall out. I have that one constantly, and half the time in my dreams, I'm just like holding all these teeth and i'm like what do i do with these teeth and when i wake up from the teeth falling out dream it's the best like wake up ever i'm like oh thank you lord that all of my teeth didn't really fall out it is so crazy how it's often weird. i dream about that mm-hmm. there's also there's a house that i consistently return to in my dreams that has a double staircase i don't know what that's about and then there's a very weird dream where i i haven't had this a lot but i it is recurring where i go through like a weird laundry cycle like i'm the laundry it's very bizarre <laughs> that i need therapy for that one too okay <laughs> okay awesome. but here's something so interesting that i saw on twitter brian which is why i'm bringing up the topic of dreams um, this was somebody was just sharing this. Basically, Google did some research about dreams, and here's what they found: uh, We're all human, of course, but we don't dream about the same things. In fact, different countries around the world, people in those countries tend to dream about different things. So there are the most googled dream in the world 
are dreams about snakes. And there are yes. 52 countries in the world that dream about snakes more than anything else. I've never had a snake dream in my life. You obviously haven't either because you don't remember dreams. But I wonder if um, these are so mostly centered places in places like, that have snakes. Well, it, here's what's interesting. If you look at the map, it's places like Finland, uh, Russia, uh Kazakhstan, Afghanistan, Turkey. So it uh, uh there's a I mean there's a variety India. I mean I guess perhaps that's it. Maybe there are a lot of snakes there in those places and that's why the next most Google dream is teeth falling out. So I fit in there 17 countries have teeth falling out dreams. Canada, America, other places um, around the world have teeth falling out dreams. Then some of the other dreams around the world, this is so interesting. Um, Iceland dreams a lot about snow, kind of appropriate. Saudi Arabia dreams a lot about marriage. Australia also dreams about teeth falling out. Bolivia dream a lot about babies in Bolivia. Mm. South America dreaming a lot about relationships. Uh, so this is so fascinating to me, Brian, that you can almost like by by culture or by location figure out the common dreams that people have. So what do you think that says? Like if if snakes, we kind of went to okay, maybe there's snakes in those places. But if teeth is fa- teeth falling out is the big dream in the United States and Canada, why? I have no idea. Like here, this Bizarre, I'm blown away right? by this. Aubrey, you saying to me, before looking at this map, you saying to me yeah. that you regularly dream about your teeth falling out. You are mm-hmm. the first person I've ever heard in my life say that I have dreams about my teeth falling out. And then you open up this oh, map really? and you're like, the whole world is dreaming about their teeth falling out. And yeah. I don't have the first yeah. clue I have never had a dream as far as I know of my teeth falling out. And I don't know why that would be like, you're not in danger of your teeth falling out. There's I, I'm sure there's right. some, there's some Freudian psychoanalyst somewhere. Who's like, well, this definitely is exactly- there is. Yes. I didn't even know that people ever dreamt about this. Like when you said my teeth falling out, I'm like, that is the strangest dream anybody has I've ever heard. And then we open up this map and it's like, Nope, this is what everybody around the world is dreaming about. I don't know what to do with it. And here's the crazy thing is so many people are, of course they're responding to this tweet and they're talking about the people who are talking about the tooth dream. It's the similar thing. They're all holding their teeth, trying to get them back in. And so that's, what's so funny about that. Other people are talking about dreaming about maybe wild animals breaking into their house. Sometimes snakes are part of it. Sometimes they're, they aren't. But I, I know for me, when I tend to dream about my teeth falling out, it's like a week that I'm very stressed out. Like there's a mm. lot going on. I have deadlines to meet or I've got something that I need to be prepared for. It's like instead of the dream where, you know, you show up to class and like you don't have your clothes on or you haven't done your homework. For me, it's like I'm holding my teeth. So for whatever reason, that's how my oh. subconscious deals with my stress. Isn't that isn't that so bizarre? Anyway, I... I I don't know what to make of this, Brian, but I just thought it was interesting that in different places in the world, there are different types of dreams. And what does that say about us as the human species? I don't really know, but I think it's kind of fun to talk about. I feel sad for you, though, Brian. I'm going to pray that you have a really good dream tonight. Next time I have a dream and I remember it, I'm going to come in. We'll start the show with Aubrey. I had a dream and here's what it was. I was my teeth were falling okay, out cannot, while I was being chased wait. by snakes and babies. That was 
Uh, I hope that happens. That is my prayer for you of a good snake dream or teeth falling out dream tonight. Well, for the rest of you, we hope you have very sweet dreams whenever you lay your head on your pillow tonight. Thanks so much for joining us today. We'll be back again tomorrow from 4 to 6 p.m. For Brian Fromm, I'm Aubrey Sampson, and you've been listening to The Common Good on AM 1160. Hope for your life. Three-star general Michael J. Flynn, head of the Pentagon Intelligence Agency, knew all the government's dirty secrets. He was one of the most respected generals in the military. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He understood its funding. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. The explosive new documentary, Flynn, deliver the truth, whatever the cost, and covers the facts behind this scandal. Flynn told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. I find out the worst enemy that I'm going to face in my life is right here in America. They took my assessment and they wanted me to change it. I was like, I'm not changing it. They had to get rid of Flynn. With in-depth interviews, archival footage, and never-before-seen personal record to the man behind the headlines. I just felt like I was drowning. Flynn. Deliver the truth, whatever the cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to salemnow.com. salemnow.com.